Welcome to the latest edition of my podcast. I am Damien Barr and this is my literary salon. A salon is wherever you are. You might be on the bus, you might be at home, you might be in the gym, in which case, run faster. Adam Kay, you can't have escaped him, did not know that when he started to keep diaries as a junior doctor that they would one day become the UK's best-selling book, not just for a month, not just for two months, but for over six months. And those diaries will be adapted to be a BBC TV series. They are by turns heartbreaking and hysterical. So, the doctor will see you now. It might surprise you to learn that as a teenager, I wanted to be a doctor. Um, Dr. Barr had a nice ring to it. Uh, so I went and did work experience in my local hospital. Um, I was working experience as a nurse, not work experience as a doctor, but there were no male nurses outfits for a tall 16 year old. Um, so they put me in a white coat um, and I wandered around the hospital for a week just giving advice, really. <laughs> um, and it was absolutely terrifying um, how readily people would ask me for it. Um, and probably scarier still is the fact that I really did think about, she can go, it's fine. It was a geriatric hospital, I was like, no, it's fine. Um, but anyway, it was, a, it was a very intense time. And actually, at the end of my, my two weeks there, one of my patients that I did like, um, I went in and she wasn't there, the, the bed was empty. And it did really strike me that they actually really did die. Um, and I thought, no, I can't do that. So I didn't become a doctor, um, saving many lives, um, mine included. Um, Adam Kay, however, had no such choice. He was born into a family of medics. Nothing could prepare him for the joys and the horrors of being a junior doctor. His secret diaries have sold to over 25 countries. They've held the top of the bestseller charts for the past six months, which basically means that he and Ella Oliphant have sustained British publishing. Um, he's performing them on stage to record crowds and he's adapting them for the BBC and on the train on the way up here today I saw somebody reading them and laughing, which is very satisfying. Uh, they are by turns side-splitting and heartbreaking. They reveal an institution and an individual at their best and worst. Please welcome the most famous former doctor in Britain that isn't Harold Shipman, Adam Kay! <laughs> Um, my God, look at all these post-it notes and your yeah. scrawly, doctory handwriting. Exactly, it's the You've... last thing that goes. Yeah. Um, they are, they are Shipman. I'm just, this yeah. is kind of like a jukebox of what you might get. Shipman hyphen degloving. Degloving, yeah, I could do degloving. <laughs> it's a Should good story. No, I'm sure that's, you, you, you say you start your readings with, you know, 12th October 1984 yeah. and the, in the Grand Hotel, um, I generally start mine with degloving. Should we go for degloving? I was in the Grand Hotel over the weekend. Actually. I was I was playing at the Theatre Royal in Brighton. I, I, I'm not saying the Grand should be bombed again, but and it it would force it to have a bit of a lick of paint, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah, it could do with a lick of paint and a bit of a Hoover. Could do anyway. Um, so what, so what I read out and you just sort of I just sit here and look at you adoringly. Okay. I just sit here and look at you adoringly. It's difficult. What face do you do? 
degloving um, for the people who didn't go <gasps> uh, when Damon said the word it's when the skin and associated blood vessels are torn traumatically from the underlying structures. So, like if a motorcyclist flies off their bike on their hand, judder along the ground, you know, degloving, say what you see. Patient WM is 18 and was out celebrating with friends after receiving his A-level results, three C's. <laughs> after chucking out time, he found himself dancing on the roof of a bus shelter, then decided to get back to ground level using a neighbouring lamp post as a fireman's pole. He jumped onto the lamp post and slid down koala bear style. He had misjudged the texture of the lamp post, which provided more friction than he had allowed for. He therefore presented to A&E with severe grazing to both hands and a complete degloving of his penis. Oh. Oh. This is far and away the worst penis that I have ever seen. And I have seen a lot of penises. A couple of inches of urethra coated with a thin layer of bloody pulp, maybe two millimetres diameter in total. It brought to mind a remnant of spaghetti stuck to the bottom of the bowl by some tomato sauce. <laughs> the patient was upset. <laughs> this was made worse when he asked if the penis could be re-gloved. The consultant explained that the glove was spread evenly up eight foot of lamppost in Fulham. <laughs> so that was when I was a house officer, uh, oh. which is the, the first rung of being a doctor. It basically involves getting shouted at for 16 hours a day and being splashed with bodily fluids. Not even the fun kind. And then um, I went from that to being a senior house officer. I chose the specialty of obstetrics and gynaecology, or brats and twats, as it was known. <laughs> Or parts and labour. Um, <laughs> oh, 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 a very literary salon. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so this is from my first week as an obstetrician. It concerns a von Tuss delivery, which is the, the mini hoover to suck a baby out. First von Tuss extraction, I suddenly feel like an obstetrician. It's a pretty notional job title until you can, you know, actually extract a baby. My registrar, Lily, talks me through it gently, but I do it on myself and it feels great. Congratulations, you did amazingly well there, says Lily. Thank you, I reply, then realise she's actually talking to the mother. <laughs> I, I wanted this book to sort of be uh, a book that junior doctors could show to their friends and family and say, this is, this is what it's like. And so some of that involved things that a lot of other people didn't realise about being a doctor, like the fact that once a year you move hospital. And, which makes sense, we work at some big hospitals, some small ones, some experts in this, some in that, and you're randomly scattered once a year around what's known as a deanery. They've divided the country up into deaneries, uh, and so, but the problem is that the deaneries are quite big, for example, one of them is called Scotland, and it's, <laughs> it's very difficult to find a flat that ha that's handy for all of Scotland. Um, so you have to say to your partner, unless you live in a vacuum, do you know, do you mind if we move 150 miles away? And, and they're not going to say yes eight years in a row. And all junior doctors move on the same day of the year, which is known as Black Wednesday. It's Black Wednesday, and I've started at St. Mary's. It says St. Agatha's in the book. Uh, we had to uh, change. I spent a whole day Googling saints who didn't have hospitals named after them. <laughs> it's Black Wednesday, and I've started at St. Agatha's. It's an established fact that death rates go up on Black Wednesday. Knowing this really takes the pressure off, so I'm not trying very hard. 
couple more? How are we doing? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's happening. 29th of February 2008, special occasions call for patients to insert special types of objects into their vaginas and recta. Christmas in particular has rewarded me well with a stuck fairy, a swollen vulva from a mistletoe contact allergy, and vaginal burns from a patient's stuffing string of lights inside and turning them on. <laughs> Bringing new meaning to the phrase, I put the Christmas lights up myself. <laughs> This is my first leap year working as a doctor, and the great British public have really pulled it out of the bag for me with a very, very specific injury. Patient JB decided to take advantage of tradition and proposed to her boyfriend, going to the expense of buying an engagement ring, the trouble of putting it aside a kinder surprise egg, and the imagination of inserting it vaginally. Her partner would discover it, retrieve it, and then she would go down on one knee, equal parts unexpected, disgusting, and, I suppose, romantic? <laughs> unfortunately, which is a word that appears a lot in this book, unfortunately, he was unable to retrieve it as planned. It had rotated itself lengthwise, and no amount of sugarling from either of them would get this particular goose to lay its golden egg. Remarkably, she was so keen to maintain the surprise, she wouldn't tell him what she'd done or why, but eventually decided it was a hospital matter, so we all met in cubicle three. It was a very easy delivery with a pair of forceps. Now, she hadn't told me about the contents of the egg either at this point, so there was a moment of confusion for both me and the boyfriend when she asked him to open it. I passed him a pair of latex gloves, sandblasting the last trace of romance from the scenario. She popped the question, and he said yes, presumably out of fear as to what a woman who does that with a kinder surprise <laughs> would do to him if spurned. Uh, At this point, I'm a senior registrar, which is one click below consultant. It means that out of hours, so evenings, weekends, and nights, I'm the most uh, senior person uh, on the ground. An 85-year-old long-stay gynae cancer patient breaks our hearts on yesterday's ward round. She misses her late husband, her children have barely visited, and she can't even have her usual whiskey nightcap in here. I decided to play Boy Scout and prescribe whiskey 50 mils nightly on her drug chart. I gave the house officer 20 quid to get a bottle from the supermarket to pass on to the nursing staff so they could fulfill the prescription on their drug round. This morning, the ward sister reports the patient declined her drink because, quote, Jack Daniels is fucking cat piss. <laughs> one last one? Yeah. Well, nice. <laughs> I mean, there could have been a whole book on amazing things old people said. There's, there's, if you're worried a patient's demented, you ask this certain set, series of questions, and one of them is like, you know, what your name is and who the Prime Minister is and all that stuff. And one of them is you ask them to spell the, wor the word world, but backwards. And I said to this guy in his 90s, can you spell the word world backwards? And he said, do you mean as in the planet or the past participle of to world? <laughs> <laughs> oh. 2nd of December 2010, spending a sunny Sunday afternoon on Labour Ward with an excellent SHO. She asked me to review baby's heart tracing for a patient, and I'll give with her assessment that the patient needs an urgent caesarean section for fetal distress. They're a lovely couple, recently married, it's their first baby, and they understand the situation. 
The SHO asks if she can perform the cesarean while I assist, which is the standard way that you train up. In theatre, the SHO goes through the layers, skin, fat, muscle, peritoneum one, peritoneum two, uterus. After the uterine incision, rather than the amniotic fluid, blood comes out, a lot of blood. There's been an abruption, which means the placenta's come away. I stay calm and ask the SHO to deliver the baby. She says she can't, there's something in the way. I take over the operation, the placenta is in the way. The patient has an undiagnosed placenta previa. It should have been noticed on scan. She should never have been allowed to go into labor. I deliver the placenta, then deliver the baby. The baby is clearly dead. Pediatricians attempt resuscitation with no success. The patient's bleeding heavily from the uterus, one litre, two litres. My stitches have no effect. Drugs have no effect. I call for the consultant to come in urgently from home. The patient's now under general anaesthetic and receiving emergency blood transfusions. Blood loss, five litres. I try brace suture, which are big stitches to compress the womb like a pair of braces. No luck. I'm squeezing the uterus as hard as I can with both hands. It's the only thing that stops the bleeding. The consultant arrives, attempts another brace suture. It doesn't work. I can see the panic in her eyes. The anaesthetist is telling us he can't get fluid into the patient fast enough to replace what she's losing and we're risking organ damage. The consultant calls another colleague. He's not on duty, but he's the most experienced surgeon any of us can think of. We take it in turn, squeezing the uterus until he arrives 20 minutes later. He performs a hysterectomy. The bleeding's finally under control, 12 litres. The patient goes to intensive care, and I'm warned to expect the worst. My consultant talks to the husband. I start to write up the operation notes, but instead just cry for an hour. I still don't understand. Did the patient, did the, did the mother live um, or not? She goes to intensive care. What happens? It wasn't to happen. We don't... I realise that most of these stories aren't mine to tell. They're 1% they're mine, so uh, I limit the amount we say, and that's, as, it wasn't a happy outcome, but that's okay. as much as you know, the lawyers want me to say. Um, you, that, that was the moment that, that decided you to stop, right? Yeah, that was the last diary entry I wrote. I mean, I, I limped on as a doctor. Um, I was very cautious. I was overcautious. If a, patient's, if a baby's heart rate dropped by one beat per minute once, they got a caesarean then. It's me doing it, not, no one junior to me. Mm. I wanted to prevent anything bad ever happening ever again. But what I realised is that even if I'd done that on my bad day at work, it wouldn't have prevented it. Sometimes tragedies just happen. If you're a senior obstetrician on the ward and the buck stops with you, it will happen. And no, no one talks about it when you go into the profession. I, I know of one consultant who, who, who never taught me, but she says to her trainees when they start in obstetrics, by the day you retire, this is horrible, this is brutal, but it's true, by the day you retire, there's going to be a busload of dead kids and kids with cerebral palsy, and that bus is going to have your name on the side of it, and if you can't deal with it, get out now. And that's, that's the truth of the job. Mm -hmm. But that's one out of thousands who talk about it. And no one... You just don't. Mm -hmm. you, are you not allowed to? Like, is there, are, you, are you offered grief counselling? Are you occupational health? Is there any, any allowance made for you in terms of your no. work schedule? No. So it was like I'd said, I've sprained my ankle. Oh, no, that's awful. You were right. But obviously you can come back to work tomorrow morning. 
Because there's no slack in the system that means you can leave on time. There's definitely no slack in the system that means someone can stand in and replace you for, for a fortnight. So what should happen is there's someone permanently employed by HR to talk mm. to what are known as second victims, people who, who've had their, their terrible days at work. And you should be offered a bit of time off. You might not take it, but the culture says we're bloody doctors and we bloody head on with it and a stiff upper lip and a stiff drink. And you're not, we don't use proper coping mechanisms. We, we make up coping mechanisms. For me, in retrospect, it was writing the funny stuff, the gross stuff, the flippant stuff, down in these diaries. In retrospect, that was, that was me coping, but it didn't give me a thick enough armour. Clearly, how, how can it? Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I was really shocked to learn that, for example, you weren't allowed to go to a patient's funeral if someone had died. You weren't allowed to go and pay, pay your respects. My sister's a firefighter, and a part of their job is just that somebody from the shift goes. If there's a fatality, they go to the funeral. And doctors, who are the people who are right there, aren't allowed. And it seems to me to be something about shame there. That is exactly right. You failed if someone dies. But everyone dies. Yeah. You know? And it's, it's, it's allowed to happen. And there are, it's, a cultural, it's a cultural problem at the heart of medicine. When you apply to medical school, they don't check that you're made of the right stuff. If you want to be a train driver, they'll assess you psychologically. If you want to be an astronaut, if you want to go on Love Island, they'll make <laughs> you speak to a psychologist. If you, if you want to be a, a doctor, all they do is they check you've got loads and loads of A's at A-level. Which is, I mean, you don't want doctors to be stupid, but the best doctors are not the cleverest doctors. Mm. And they check you've got loads of uh, extracurricular activities. I was editor of the school newspaper, I, I played the piano, I played the saxophone. Um, and those are the surrogate markers. They, and if you look through the, the Wikipedia entry of any famous doctor, it's always been the same throughout history. Um, he proved himself an accomplished rugby player in youth leagues, he excelled as a distance runner, and in his final year at school was vice captain of the athletics team. And that's the Harold Chipman uh, marker in, uh, <laughs> uh, in my diary. So it's potentially not a totally rock-solid system. But we pretend it's not... You know, I didn't cope, and I left. Lots of doctors don't cope, and they kill themselves. And we don't talk about that. I had an email not long ago from a junior doctor saying... Two, very junior, in his second year of medicine... Two of his colleagues had killed themselves since he'd started work as a doctor, and he could see himself being the third unless something happened. And he didn't know where to turn. There's no, we don't talk about it so much that, that we don't know where to turn. I, I've just finished a week at the, at the Garrick Theatre, mm. um, not far from here, and in my dressing room, all the noticeable, there's there are big posters saying, Theatre Helpline, confidential, 24-7, if you've got any worries about finances or emotions, or, you know, phone this number, 24-7, free, we'll get you for counselling. There's no such thing in the NHS. Mm. There should be a Samaritans for every single healthcare professional. There is none. It's, mm. it's a disgrace. Um, you did get an opportunity to sit down and talk with Jeremy Hunt. I did. <laughs> And um, how did that opportunity come about? And had he read your book? And, um, and what was it like? Uh, yeah, it was a, that, was, that was a weird day. So, um, you know, I, I do all these signings, you know, what they do. And uh, a lot of people, in the, when it first came out in Harvard, were saying, uh, could you sign me a second copy for Jeremy Hunt? I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and then eventually he, uh, he uh, 
ropes to uh, my amazing editor, Francesca, just back from maternity leave. Hi, Francesca. Um, to say, if you come and, and meet me, Adam, will people stop sending me this fucking book? <laughs> <laughs> I'm paraphrasing slightly, but that was the, that was the gist. And, and so I, I did go to meet him. And Is that when he was still in post? He was still in post. Yeah. He was still in post. I've since met the new guy as well. Um, but so Jeremy Hunt... He was, very, he was a very clever man, um, and those are the ones we need to be worried about, really, aren't they? And, uh, and he had very slick political answers. Anything I said, I, I had hard, half a decade of questions for this man, and so I was saying these things, he had the very slick answer right back at me, but I kept answering my questions, and eventually he snapped. He was like, what is this? This is an interrogation, this is an interview. I thought we were coming in for a nice chat. And I was like, well, I didn't agree to the, the nice chat bit. But anyway, um, from that point forward, it was like when you're in trouble with your other half and everything's answered with, yes, no, yeah, fine. Um, <laughs> and then he sort of pressed some sort of button under his desk or something and, so, and someone came in and, Mr. Hum, there's another um, person here to see you, emergency. Um, and, and it was horrible. And so at the end, there was bad air. And I said, I'm really sorry if I came across nicer... Uh, in the book than I do in real life. <laughs> and he said, uh, and he said, oh no, I think you've been quite consistent. <laughs> um, you kept those diaries then as a part of your reflective practice. Yep. Um, and you found them, um, I think, was it when the GMC got in touch with you to say, you know, are you, are you going to let your qualifications lapse? Yeah, that's exactly right. So I'd, I'd, I'd written them, um, I'd gone up to my hospital on cool room uh, every, every evening and sort of jotted all this stuff down like a, like a medical Anne Frank and, um, with worse accommodation. And uh, <laughs> No? OK. And <laughs> you're fine with the price and bombing material. <laughs> and, uh, and then they sort of, sort of stayed in a filing cabinet when I left and I didn't want to think about it. I'd occasionally refer to them to upset guests at dinner parties or whatever. But... Um, and then two things happened roughly at the same time. The, the GMC who regulate doctors wrote to me to say, you know, hi, Adam, long time, no disciplinary hearing. Um, you need to either, you know, revalidate yourself properly and do this sort of, some sort of crystal maze examination thing to check I can still be a doctor, um, or you need to sort of declare yourself off-road. And at the same time, the junior doctors were coming under fire from the government. And, the, the go and you remember, they went on strike a couple yeah. of years ago. And the government's line was that doctors were being greedy. They were grabbing, they wanted more money, which wasn't actually the truth. What it was about was working conditions, which means patient safety, which means the best interests of the patient. And anyway, doctors couldn't get their side of the story across because they were at work 100 hours a week being junior doctors. And the government, with their big loud voice, you know, won this battle because they were getting hurt. And I thought... If I could amplify, you know, if only five people, you know, read about those diaries, mm. uh, then Picador would be in trouble. Um, but uh, th those would be five people um, who otherwise, who next time it happens, uh, would know more about what it means to be a doctor. The, the, how mad the concept is that anyone might be in that job for the money, a job that destroys relationships and destroys friendships. And like, you reschedule your own stag do's for and of the seven Christmases where I was qualified as a doctor, I got to see my family for one of them, so it wasn't all bad. 
Um, do you think that we will still have an NHS in 5, 10, 15 years? I mean, af after Brexit, if, it, if that happens, but do you think we'll still have an NHS as we know it? I don't know. That's a really scary answer. I th we need to have a big grown-up conversation as a country and ask what we want the NHS to provide mm. and how we're going to pay for it. If we want the NHS to be free at the point of service based on clinical need, not based on bank balance, the idea it was based on, I think, our greatest success as a civilization. I pray we want that. We're going to have to put our hands in our pockets a bit to mm. pay for it. If we don't want that, there'll be a shortfall and that'll be some sort of insurance system and then we have to, we have to do that. And I hope we don't choose that. Mm. You'll all be fine because you come to events at the Savoy. <laughs> people who won't be fine in any two-tier system are the people who have the very least. And if mm. any time funding is discussed in the, in the papers or in the internet, below the line, in the letters pages or whatever, you hear people saying, just, just charge a fiver to see a GP. You can afford a fiver. There are millions of people who you don't hang out with for whom a fiver is unimaginable wealth. It's the difference between their kids eating and their kids not eating. And they can't afford that. And they've got a, very, they've got a voice far quieter than the junior doctors have. And if the NHS changes to any kind of two-tier insurance-supported system, all the evidence states is they're the people who are going to suffer. And we've got the most amazing thing in the NHS. And we need to have a grown-up discussion. And hopefully, we need to decide to invest in it. Um, I, I've got some, um, some time for questions for Adam, if you want. It can be, you might have a rash. Um, uh, actually, you know, now, that you're, now that you're writing and doing scripts, which is worse? Somebody saying, can you look at my rash? Or somebody saying, can you read my script? Reading scripts. Don't yeah, send there us. There you go. So rash is welcome. Rash can be dealt with quite quickly. And these days, I can explain, I've not been a doctor for eight years, and I've been almost continually drunk for that period of the time. So that's, <laughs> that's your own roll of the dice. Question there. Yes. Yes, hiya. Oh, hiya, Cathy. So a question about pelvic floor exercises. Question from the, uh, from the elderly Cathy Rentenbrick about uh, <laughs> how best to maintain her uterus uh, where it used to be. Um, Cathy, were you a geriatric mother? <laughs> no, I, just, so, I only learned that term recently, so I'm excited to use it. Where are you? Yes. Okay. Maybe you can discuss that with Adam afterwards. So I always used to say, I, th I think I mentioned this in the book, so uh, for pelvic floor exercises, pe people always give these sort of complicated uh, sort of diagrams, laminated pictures of muscle groups. Uh, I would just say to my patients, imagine you're in a bath full of eels and you don't want any of them getting in. <laughs> I'm doing it now. I'm doing it now. <laughs> uh, question from Alex Hemsley. Go on, Alex. Oh yes. When, when is Black Wednesday? We want to help. We, yes. Uh, it would usually be the first Wednesday in August. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's just being very healthy that week. I think that's Alison Finch. Can't quite tell. Go ahead. 
Ooh, what, what about that homeopathy then? <laughs> um, I mean, it, it can it, it's, it can treat various things, I guess. It can treat being thirsty, um, <laughs> being on fire if applied topically. Um, but I mean, we have very limited resources, as you know, as uh, as a health service. I think it's best to spend those resources on things for which there's evidence, and uh, there isn't. The NHS, interesting, has just uh, has just defunded uh, homeopathy. The, the, uh, so there we go. At, at the end um, of your career as a medic, you really clearly did have post-traumatic stress disorder, and writing the, 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 the diaries was a way for you coping at the time. I wonder, checking in with you, how has it been publishing them, going out and talking about it? Has it been for you cathartic? Has it been healing? It's been amazing. I've done my own therapy. I've had the therapy that I, I wasn't uh, offered and that I decided not to... Not to ta I the thought of talking to a therapist was so alien because I didn't tell my, my parents about it even. Like my parents found out you know, a year ago when it first came out in, in hardback. Um, and I didn't even send them a free copy. They had to buy it. Um, <laughs> but as I say that as half as a joke, but also half because even giving them a copy would have been too close to saying yeah. what had happened. Until a year or two ago, I was still waking up at night back in that operating theatre in that moment, my heart going about 200 beats a minute. And now it doesn't happen. And it's because, you know, I must have read out that diary entry 400 times. And it, reading it out doesn't ever get easy. But no. I, think I've, I think I've exercised some, some demons. Your 45 minutes of therapy are up. Thank you for joining us, Adam Kay. <laughs> the gasps in the ballroom at the Savoy. Unbelievable. Adam was a fantastic guest. The series is going to be amazing and he is also about to do a new book which is about being a junior doctor at Christmas. So if you want to find out more about future salons, whether you can get there or not or just fantasise about it, come to our website www.theliterarysalon.co.uk.